So, Karen, you know, I never thought I would say these words, but I am excited about my gut. Me too. It's fascinating to think that if you've got all the right bacteria in there, then it can have a positive effect on your hormones. And at our age, it's all about the hormones. I mean, it affects your sleep. It affects your bowel movements. Uh, vaginal health, hot flashes and bloating. I hate bloating. Oh, no, me too, me too. Well, we're two weeks into taking our Better Gut supplements and I am excited to see if it makes a difference. So far, so good for me. Are you remembering to take them? Yes, once a day with my meal. Good stuff, good stuff. Try the Better Gut today to support you through a better menopause. Visit www.thebettermenopause.com to find out more about the science and order your supplements today. With delivery straight to your door and the supplements coming in convenient, portable packaging, they will easily blend into and support any busy lifestyle. You can also sign up to their newsletter and join their thriving community. Right now, you can receive 15% off your first order with my special code. That's K15, K-A-Y-E 15, all one word. That's www.thebettermenopause.com and the code is K15. On the How To Be 60 podcast this week, the king of podcasts, Alistair Campbell. He's riding high at the moment, but it wasn't always that way. I don't know what was going on inside, but I felt absolutely wretched and I was literally smacking myself in the face really hard and bruised eyes and all that. As I was doing it, I was thinking, can't do this anymore. You can't, you can't do this on your own. You've got to sort of yourself out. It's scaring the shit out of me. Hello, everyone. Welcome to an emergency episode of the How To Be 60 podcast with me, Kay Adams, and she, Karen McKenzie. Um, before I go on, I have to say, you do realise that we're going to put some of this on social media and you look like that. What are you talking about? You, you look as if you, you should be on top of the coolants. <laughs> I feel like I'm on the top of the coolings on a ridge here. That's all I'm saying. All right, we're not going to go on about that. We're not going to go on about it. But I just wanted to point it out, just in case you wanted to try and look, you know, cool. Yeah, we're a long way from that. (laughs) Now I'm probably stretching it a bit to say it's an emergency episode, but I just thought that I would go for that, given that Alistair Campbell's our guest today. (laughs) So I thought I would channel the energy of the rest of Politics podcast, which coincidentally was launched in the same month that we did in 2022. Oh, and. It is doing slightly better than us. Who's the most <laughs> successful? Let me think. It's close. It's very close. So what are we missing? No, no, no. But if you can't innovate, you imitate. You see? That's what you do. Oh, did you make that up? I did. Mm-hmm. No, I think I pinched no. it. But anyway, hence the emergency podcast line. Um, yes. Of course, with uh, Alistair Campbell and Rory Stewart, they have their emergency podcast when there's a change in government or a crisis <laughs> or a conflict. Uh, we probably can't compete with that. But you have had a bit of a dramatic turn of events this afternoon, I believe. I did. I had to rejig my electrician, for <laughs> heaven's sakes. <laughs> it's an age thing, I think. But, you know, in the in the dining room, in the dining room, in the kitchen, I've got one sole light that goes on. Do you mind the, if I interrupt? Alistair Campbell's an extremely difficult man to get a hold of. Please, if you don't mind. We are... My electrician is now coming tomorrow. Enough. 
He's 66, you know, Alistair Campbell. I know. He doesn't look it. No, but did you know that he was that? I didn't know he was that age. No, I didn't. He's, he's um, very good looking. That's really sexist, isn't it? Oh, very yes, good it looking. is, actually. I know, sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> he, just, he just seems younger, which is interesting because, like, whatever that means, you know, what is what is younger? And, I mean, of course, you're now 64. It's just because it's that Beatles song, isn't it? Will well, you still need me? Will you... I mean, it's see, just... I wouldn't have thought of that. Would you not? No. Oh, my no. God. It just conjures up all these images of somebody, you know, sitting in a chair with no teeth in and, you know. <laughs> and a bobble hat and a big heavy jacket. <laughs> Can I just say, what I'm wearing just now is a really big, heavy padded coat and a merino wool hat. It's not a bobble hat. Yeah. But it's cosy. But it does remind me of Auntie Jessie. She wore her hat around the house all the time. <laughs> it's not a good look. But you know what? Don't give a fuck, no. I don't know whether there's admirable self-confidence in you or you've just got to that stage in life that you don't give a fuck, you know, that you would wear a skirt and pop socks. You know, that kind of stage of life. Yeah. No, that's quite sad. Do you ever get nervous about anything? It doesn't seem that you do. Like we did, like the Friends show and the other shows. You weren't nervous. I was nervous. You don't get nervous about guests. I'm nervous about... Uh, I'm more nervous if you're nice to me. What does that make you nervous? That makes me nervous. That unsettles me. Does it? Yeah. That makes me sound awful. I know it's a bit like turbulence. It just makes your stomach <laughs> just turn a bit and you think, oh, God, what's coming? What's behind this? What's ahead? But, I mean, I'm nice to you most of the time. I mean, I joke with you, but are you really going to tell people that I'm not nice to you? <laughs> I didn't say that. I said you make me nervous when you are nice to me. One thing that does make me nervous is, and you were talking about, you know, um, being on stage or the fringe, whatever, being in front of a microphone on my own. So I'm fine if, you know, you're there, if somebody else is here. But I do remember a few years ago um, on BBC Radio Scotland and I was a co-host and the presenter that I was on with just didn't turn up. He was in the building, but it was 10 seconds to going on here and he wasn't there. So it was like, you're having to just, can you just read the script? Ah, oh my God, I felt sick. He was in the toilet. Oh, no. I think he was having a wobbly. But anyway. I wondered what you were going to say. <laughs> he was having a whoa, 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 wobbly. <laughs> Whatever he was having, he just turned up. I was thinking, oh, my God. So that did make me nervous. So, yeah. See, when I was younger, that would have made me nervous, I have to say. But I suppose, you know, I mean, I've been around the block so many bloody times. I don't think that would make me nervous anymore I get nervous interviewing certain people because I feel that I don't want to be stupid I don't want to look stupid you feel intimidated um I don't feel intimidated no but I kind of have this I don't have a childish thing I want to make a good account of myself I want to impress people mm. and I would hate them to walk away and think oh god she was a tosspot so I think that does it and then of mm. course but I mean the, the time that I have been so nervous I felt like I was wearing my skin inside out with Strictly. I have never known nerves like that. Oh, I see. I see. Utterly debilitating. I was, like, beside myself, outside myself, churning myself inside well, out. completely different you challenge, know? wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, just absolutely shocking. Oh, um, anyway, hopefully... Millions of people watching you and knowing that. And knowing you were shy. <laughs> That's not true. God, you went out there. Did it. Anyway, right. So, shall we have a quick email of the week? Uh-huh. 
quickie. Right, we'll make it a quickie yeah. because Alistair Campbell is a man in a hurry. Right. Um, and this is sell. an emergency podcast. Um, it's from Maribi. Maribi. I can't remember when it was. It was a few weeks ago that I was scouting about to get people to give ideas for what you could do. <laughs> a new career for you at the age yes. of 64. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Well, we didn't get any response for weeks, I have to be honest. Uh, no, not for but, the right reasons. Yeah, but Marie B has come up with it. Oh. She says, hi, King Karen. I think Karen could have a new career as a retirement coach. She is such a good advocate for retirement. Wow. Well, I mean, I have to say, advocate, yeah, you, you, once you, when you retire, you can do the things that you want to do. And that's the important thing. Oh, you swung into that. Yes. No, 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 absolutely. It's all about, it's your time now and it's, yeah, enjoying and making the most of life. Oh, look at you. Isn't that nice? (laughs) Um, Keep your thoughts coming in. Podcast at htb60.com. And it would be really good to hear from you. We'll speak to Alistair Campbell after this. I'm a bit troubled by being an emergency, by the way. I don't want to be an emergency podcast. I mean, I've, I'm even wearing a kind of a woolly jumper to be kind of <laughs> chilled and relaxed. And now I'm, I discover I'm an emergency. Well, are you trying to channel Karen's energy perhaps here? No, this isn't, this is, this isn't like a heat thing. It's a, I thought it would look quite fashionable for me. Oh, no. that's kind of cool. zip, up to, zip up to the chin, No. Cozy, comfortable, sort yeah. of man at ease kind of vibe. Yeah, and now I did. Now I discovered this is like panic. That's interesting because you're not feeling it. So it must have been me. It's just because you are so busy. You're you're all over the place. You you're involved in so many things. I was almost embarrassed to text you to ask you to do it because I thought, oh God, what's this guy going to want to spend time speaking to us about? Well, yeah, that's to misunderstand me. Is it? I think so, yeah. Yeah. No, I was quite pleased to do it and very always happy to do it, but it's just that you kept asking me to do it and I couldn't do it at the time that you asked me to do it. Yeah, that's you right. Didn't give up. No, I, I don't give but up. But she didn't give up. She didn't no. give up. No. Is that a good She's thing? Very good thing. In fact, um first plug of uh, one of my eighteen books in my last book, I invented the word perseverance. Perseverance. I like, do you like that. Right. Yeah. But you do live your life at a very fast pace, do, or do you not? Is that just the impression that we get? No, I think I probably do, but I, I sort of feel it's slower than it used to be. Uh, I, I now deliberately don't fly as much as I did. I still will travel quite a lot, but, but I'm, my instinct now is to say no rather than yes if it involves a lot of travel. Um, I do do a lot of things. I've got a very, very, very low boredom threshold. Um, I have to be motivated. I have to be doing things. I like, I like juggling until you know things get a bit out of control. I'm much better at working out when they might get out of control. Right. And what? Why do you like it that way? I don't know. Um, why do I like it that way? I like to be interested. I like to be curious. So, like you know, doing the podcast. We did the podcast this morning. And it, I, I mean, obviously, I know that we launched at the same time. I mean, I've always seen us as being in this never-ending direct competition. <laughs> um, but I don't know about you, but I find it keeps my brain ticking in a different sort of way. And I've actually found, I thought when it started that I would be able to think, right, well, okay, that's a big chunk of my day, my week, a couple of days a week, one and a half maybe. Therefore, I'll, I'll, I'll maybe do less of the other stuff. And that hasn't really happened. But I know that there'll come a point where I'll think, right, I'll, I need to push back on that. I need to push back on that. And 
I just sort of marry, try to marry up all the different things that I do. And when will, will that point come because of age? Because, well, I hate to remind you, and you probably know you're 66. Mm-hmm. Do you ever think about being 66 and, and, and a need to slow down? Or is it not age-related with you? I think about being 66 and a desire not to slow down. And I don't feel 66 at all. I sometimes feel physically 66, like just, you know, I don't run anymore. I used to run a lot. And now I find when I run, I, I don't enjoy it. Partly because it hurts and partly because I'm a lot slower than I used to be. So now I swim and I cycle and I box. And I enjoy all three of those things, particularly at the moment, the swimming, because we're like, Fiona and I both like swimming in cold water. And it's bloody cold at the moment. In my head, I don't feel 66 at all. So, I mean, do you not want to think about age? Or are you comfortable with the, the prospect of age? Because, I mean, I'm going to make a big assumption again, and I've already made one badly. You strike me as somebody who is... Well, I'm going to say control freak, which might be wrong, but you're clearly a very successful, capable person who's known power. And often in older age, we have to let that go. Um, Either physically something happens or mentally something happens. And so we don't necessarily have the power that we've had in our youth. And I wonder how that would sit with you. Um, yeah, it's funny the thing about power. I feel my mental powers are pretty good still. Uh, physically, yeah, probably a bit weaker than I was, but I do keep fit. Uh, I do have this kind of recurring chest thing, which is a bit of a nightmare. You know, when I'm walking about the place, like again, you know, I'm, I'm always looking when I'm on public transport, particularly the underground, which is kind of even with people, I'm always looking at other people and I don't, I sort of feel fitter than most of the people I look at. I worry about being infirm or hate not to be able to move. I'd hate not to be able to think. And, you know, I am now at that age where, you know, we've got friends who are a lot older than us, a bit older than us, who are, you know, a very close friend whose wife has now got uh, dementia. Yeah, I would find that really, really difficult, either whether it was me or whether it was Fiona, whichever way. But I don't don't overthink about it. Yeah, I'm the same. I I am completely delusional. I just cannot look at myself in the mirror and see a 60-year-old woman. But but clearly that's what the world sees. And and you do sometimes have a kind of disconnect there, don't you? I may notice it, but listen, if I look at you, I don't see an old woman. (laughs) (laughs) I don't. Well, she's sitting next to me. Older than many around us, but not. No, I mean, I don't look at you and see an old woman. I just see somebody who's wearing a silly hat. (laughs) <laughs> but it does match the backdrop, which is nice. Alistair, you're so much more chilled than I thought you would be. Why? <laughs> I, well, because obviously I've been taken in by, I mean, God, I've known about you for the last 20 years. We've all known about you for the last 20 years. Your reputation precedes you, et cetera, et cetera. You've got this massive success with um, the rest is politics. You're, you're all over the place. I just didn't think you'd be a chill guy. I'm probably not very chilled in some ways, but... I mean, I kind of think that with a lot of people in public life and in politics, there are these different personas going on. I think what I've, where I am at the moment, I don't feel the need to be any different with you than I am if I'm talking to somebody on the tube. Mm-hmm. But I'm pretty – look, if you if you said to my partner, Fiona, is he chilled most of the time? She'd say no because I'm, I'm, I'm not chilled. It's just that at this moment right now, I'm talking to you for a podcast called How to Be 60. Mm. And you're asking – straightforward questions and I'm giving straightforward answers. But I can get very, very tense and I can get very agitated. Mm. She calls it dysregulation. Yeah. What influences that then? Uh, Stress, having too much to do, people annoying me. 
But I get very unchilled by a lot that happens in the in the world. I actually watch the news a lot less than I used to because I find it so provocative. I can't stand the government. Um, I can't stand the lying. I can't stand the gaslighting. I can't stand their uselessness and their incompetence. And I don't want to be that person who sits there thinking, what we would have done is this. So I don't watch most of the time. I only I only really follow stuff now through reading a bit of watching the news and through listening to things. It's interesting, though, that you're taking measures not to do it, not to be triggered. Um, no, listen, I probably consume more news than most people, but yeah. I, do it, I do it in a different sort of way. Yeah, you, you're obviously doing it in a way that doesn't particularly trigger you. I mean, if you're on social media, I mean, we're talking about Israel, Gaza at the moment, which is obviously um, horrible. on everyone's mind. If you were to consume that through social media, you would have to be pulled off the ceiling. There are obviously other ways to inform yourself about it and be involved in the debate that it's an important stuff, but are not necessarily going to have you firing off like a crazy person. No, I mean, one of the first, in fact, the very first podcast we did after the October the 7th attacks, we... I, I, I made the point, this is going to be horrible. The debate around this is going to be absolutely horrible. And one of the things we've tried to do is to get people on who can explain the kind of bigger historical context and try to do it in a reasonable way because it is horrible. And and I actually, I'm, I'm probably way too active on social media in that I tweet a lot and I Instagram quite a lot. But I hardly ever, ever, ever look at responses. But I just kind of see the point. But occasionally, I do flick through, and occasionally, I try and look for the things that actually are worth seeing. I'm so used to kind of the abuse that you get on on online and in the press, and I'm so used to it. I hope I'm being honest in saying this, and I hope this is true. But I'm pretty sure I really don't care. I really, really don't care if somebody that I respect. Or somebody whose opinion I think I should respect says something, that can have an effect on me. But if it's some guy on social media who's got twelve followers and or is a Russian bot, I mean I understand the the game behind it. Don't like it, but it just doesn't, doesn't have any actual effect on me at all. And has that always been the case, or is that relatively recent? I think I've had it for a long time. I think I think partly having been a journalist in the in the eighties. Um, I think I've got a proper understanding that it doesn't matter. A lot of it doesn't matter. The facts of it matter. What's happening matters. And I'll tell you something. This is my first really major name drop of this entire uh, interview. But I can remember the first really long conversation I had with Princess Diana. And we were talking about the media. And she said... Why did you used to write those horrible things about me when you were a journalist? This was when I was working for Tony in 1995, 96. And I honestly was completely taken aback by it. And I said, I said, sorry, you didn't read that stuff, did you? Never crossed my mind that she'd read it. I, because, because I think now, the thing I, we now, lots of people knew then, and I certainly know now having talked to her, she read everything. And it had a profound effect on her. And also, let's be honest, she was quite good at playing the media game. Um, but that really took me aback. And I think what happened with that is that what the reason for that is I think I'd already had a, in my mind an outlook that said, this stuff doesn't matter that much. Now, 
I think when it came to me being written about, I had that same view. <clears throat> as long as it didn't stop me doing my job, as long as it didn't make me any less effective, as long as the people around me didn't believe it, it didn't bother me. So two things. One, how did that make you feel when Diana said that? Um, I was quite taken aback. And it didn't make me feel... I mean, at the time, I was so sort of, you know, looking into those beautiful eyes and smitten that I probably wasn't feeling that much. Um, but no, I, I, it, it certainly stuck with me. I think it made me evaluate a little bit the the mindset that I probably did have when I was a journalist, which is all that matters is what you're writing. The only thing that matters is a story. Um, and that, But I think it also gave me a better understanding of what it was like when I was, I mean, obviously never had it like Diana did, but when I was the subject of scrutiny, how to deal with that psychologically. So, for example, I'm, I'm here at the top of our house in, in London, and the only time I had it really, really bad was in the build-up to the Iraq inquiry, the Hutton inquiry. And Fiona and I would wake up, five. you could hear them setting up about 5, 5.30, you'd hear the cars arriving and parking and talking to each other and doors slamming and your cameras being tested. And it was like a, it was like a kind of morning chorus. And then they'd be hanging around outside and you'd be trying to get, you'd get to work or get the kids to school, whatever it might be. And I can remember, I don't know what made me think this, think like this, but I remember saying to myself, didn't articulate it to anybody, I said, right, this is going to go on for a bit. It's going to be a bit of a pain in the ass. I won't say anything at all to any of them and I won't react to anything they say. Um because I was still doing my job. I was still having to go to work and do my job and brief the press and all that stuff. Looking back, I think it was the right approach. Because And, and, and I think the thing that gave me that mindset, do you remember Coup Stark? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, Prince, Prince Andrew, Andrew connections. Yes. Yeah. I, when I was a young journalist on the Mirror, uh, I, used to, I was doorstepping her for days on end. And there was a pub where she was living. There was a pub called, I think it was called the Abingdon. And the, some of the photographers have stayed there the whole time, obviously, in case she arrived. But we would camp in this pub by a window. And then as soon as a car emerged, you know, we runs out of the pub. I mean, ridiculous way to earn a living, but hey-ho. And I can remember back then really feeling a sense of admiration for her that she never, ever, ever said a word. And I don't know whether that sort of stuck with me. But I decided that even though my job was to be the spokesman, I decided I'm not going to speak. And I think that's the resilience part of perseverance. But you can have that strategy and it works for you. But for a long period of time, and, and it lasted beyond that inquiry, you were cast in the minds of many people as an arch villain, weren't you? You, you were a bad guy for a lot of people. Did that bother you? No, not really. Um, I think I understood the motivation. I think if... Look, if I thought my mother or my father thought I was a bad guy or if I thought my kids hated me, that would really get to me. If I thought Fiona, on balance, I remember her once, she once said, um, on balance, I'm glad we've stayed together. Uh, if, she'd, if on balance, she'd not be glad we stayed together because she saw me in that light, that would get to me. But no, I think it's part of the same thing. I, I, I think that, you just, you definitely develop a thick skin, but I think I always had the thick skin. Um, I don't know where it came from, but I, 
people can still get under my skin. People can still provoke me. But in terms of straightforward abuse, it just doesn't bother me. I'd, I'd rather it didn't happen, but it didn't bother me. Yeah. Do you ever think it should bother you more? No, not really. No. I think working out whose opinion you value and whose opinion really matters, I think, is, is part of maturity. If you spend all your time thinking that everybody's opinion matters, you're going to go crazy, particularly in the modern age. Yeah. So what was that period of your life like then, you know, when you were uh, Tony Blair spin doctor, to use the, the shorthand, and you were in the eye of the storm? I mean, you were making decisions that affected the country, that affected the world, clearly, you know, we're talking about that. Did you ever look in the mirror and think, God, I'm fucking powerful? No. I think I might have looked in the mirror and thought, this is heavy stuff. Or I might have thought, I can't quite believe that I'm here. But I never felt the power was mine. That's the difference. I think Tony Blair would have looked in the mirror some, from time to time and, and perhaps thought that. I think Gordon Brown might have thought that. But no, I don't think I did. And I think that's what I sometimes get pissed off when I get compared with, the, with Dominic Cummings and his role with Johnson. I never had my own agenda separate from Tony. I had opinions which were different to his, and I was perfectly happy to express them, and I would express them. But ultimately, if he made a decision, then my job's to go out and explain what that decision is and why he's made it in the way that he has. And so I never saw the power as mine. I was conscious of other people putting the power on me, if you like. And I think that's part what, partly what the whole villain thing was about. I think a lot of um, the right-wing media in particular and the Tory party, they couldn't work out how to attack Tony. They went through so many different formulations. He was Bambi. Well, I remember in a year he went from being Bambi to being Stalin, and then it was something else. They couldn't work him out. And I think they found it easier to say, well, actually, there's not much there, but he's got these really sinister people behind him, and they're pulling the strings, and they're whispering in his ear and telling him what to do. I think the public and the media like to have a sort of a dramatis a person around them that sort of are these different characters. And I, I was the sort of, you know... I was the big, strong, sug guy who, you know, shouted at people. And I, I just, I, di I didn't feel that's what I was. So I feel the power was something that was slightly put upon me, but it was useful. It was something that I could use to help do the job on his behalf, which is how I always saw it. Did you enjoy that period of your life? Uh, yeah, I mean, not always, not always. I remember when my first volume of Diaries came out, it was one of the one of the reviewers said that it was striking how often I seemed not to be happy, and I think that's true. I think a lot of the time I wasn't happy, but I'm very, 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 very happy that I did it. I've never been somebody who sees happiness as about having a good time. Uh, I don't even see happiness necessarily as as being about always having success. I see happiness as something that you kind of build over time. I don't even really know if you've lived a a happy life until you start to kind of get way beyond 16 is to start to think about about the end so i feel thus far i've had a pretty good life and a pretty you know interesting and challenging life and i'd say broadly a happy life but that to me has never really been what it's about what has it been about i think trying to you know i, I do sort of have a, a belief that while you're here you should try and change the world around you a bit and that's ultimately politics is best. That's what it's about. I was at school last week, and um, it was just really interesting to 
getting all these questions about politics and the current government. And there was one girl who asked me recently, she said, you know, has politics always been this bad? And I thought, you know, she was probably 15, 16. All she's known politically is probably since Johnson, since Cameron, maybe Brexit, and on we go. That's all she's known from politics. So why wouldn't you think it's just terrible? And I like to think that actually, you know, for all that any government gets criticised for stuff, you know, I think we did a lot of good things and, and I'm really, really glad to have been part of them. You miss it? Yeah, I kind of in a way, but I still feel involved, bizarrely. And, and again, it's this thing about what people put upon you. You'd be amazed when I'm out and about how many people will talk to me, not just because they know me or because they know that I write for a newspaper or write books or I do a podcast. They talk to me because they somehow think I can make a difference. And, you know, you get people, and I'd say to them, you know, I'm not a politician, don't you? Yeah, but, you know, you can you can do this. And, and sometimes I find that quite nice, but sometimes I find it really frustrating. But you can't, the truth is, I think you can, politics, I say this in the, the last book I wrote, politics isn't just about being a politician. Politics is whatever you can do to make change. So I think that some of the stuff I've done, some of the stuff of all the things I've done since I left number 10, which is 20 years ago now, the I think this I've done lots of different things, written loads and loads of books, 18 books, um, made films, done loads of media, hundreds of speeches, made a nice living. But I'd say of the, all the things I do, I'd say the stuff that I enjoy the most is the campaigning on mental health and going into schools. Mm. Going into schools because I think that we've really got a problem with political education in this country. Kids are basically taught to be cynical about politics, and I think it's important to teach them that politics can be good. Um, and the mental health stuff, because I think it's it's something that I feel the skills and experience that I've developed lend themselves to that kind of campaign. Mm. So you can make a difference in loads of different ways. Why didn't you become a politician, though? Um, I don't know, really. I think I know I could have done, and I probably should have done, and... I also know that I regret that I didn't. And then people say, well, look at Joe Biden, he's nearly 80, or he is 80. Look at Trump, he's nearly 80. But I just think there's something inside me that says I've done my bit in that way. And that was as somebody working for the politician. I could have done it any time. Because I remember in 97, Tony asked me if I wanted to get a seat. I said, well, do you want me to run the campaign or not? Oh, yeah, okay. 2001, I wanted to get a seat, and he said, no, 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 you've got to do the campaign. 2005, I was sick to death of the whole thing, wanted to be out of it. 2010, Gordon asked me to go back, and he wanted both me and Fiona to get seats. Something held us back, and I think what held us back was that that, that decade or so, was it was difficult. And as I say, even though I do have a thick skin, it's the difficulties that it brings into your family and your own life outside work that sometimes makes makes you make the judgment, do you know what, maybe try it in a different way. I mean, what impact did it have? Because, I mean, you, your kids were young, weren't they, through that period? Yeah, I mean, look, who knows? But I think it wasn't it wasn't a normal life. I think, look, I th- I tried to be, I've always tried to be a good dad. I've always tried to be there for them. But the fact is, when you're operating at the sort of level and sort of pressure that I was operating at most of the time, it's very, very hard to do that. I'm looking back again, this is 
it's actually quite helpful to have the diaries for this. It's obvious to me looking back that virtually every weekend I was present but absent. Um, virtually every holiday I went into an immediate depression as soon as I tried to stop because deep down I couldn't stop because there was too much to do. I mean, the kids were all brilliant in their own way, but they were, I think they all did pay a price in different ways. Um, but, you know, my daughter's making it as a comedian and she, her childhood gave, gave her a lot of material that she happily uses at my expense. They had, I, think, I like to think they had some great experiences that came from it, but it was difficult. And the most difficult thing, I think, was I don't think they minded... The, well, they didn't like it, but they didn't mind the being away and the traveling and all that stuff. But what they couldn't stand was when the pressures of the job were also coming into the home. And that got really difficult towards the end because Fiona was fundamentally against the Iraq war, fundamentally against some of the public service reform stuff that we were doing. And, and that was just, a, you know, to be honest, it was a bit of a nightmare. You're at work all day <laughs> arguing for some very difficult decisions. Then you... You come home and you happen to do the same, and um, so that was that was difficult. Uh, well, how did you manage that? Because that sounds very difficult, and that sounds, to be honest, if it could put any relationship under real strain. Well, I think it was under strain, and 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 but how do we manage it? I think, to be honest, by realizing that there's a limit to the time that you can live like that, um, and ultimately, although it was difficult, um, I think that's. Deep down, I mean, there's all sorts of reasons why you can give up a job like that. But I think deep down, that was probably number one. Um, I just couldn't. So, you know, I've, I've, I've hit the end of the road here. Um, so I think once I'd said, look, I'm going to leave, okay? <laughs> I'm going to leave. I'm going to give this up and I'll do something else. Once I think Fiona understood that was real, I think things moved into a, a slightly better place. But then what was it like when you did give up? Because if you live, you know, 10 years or more at, at that pace, operating at that level with the influence that, that you had, and, and I know you're saying you didn't feel it was for yourself, and then it stops. I mean, what was that like? It wasn't easy. I probably had the worst depression I'd ever had in the weeks and months following. And I think it was literally my brain decompressing. And I can... You know, I was in. I wasn't in a good way at all. That's when I started to to see a psychiatrist for the first time because I was I wasn't in good shape. Now, it could have been to do with all sorts of things. Maybe the work had, a bit like alcohol in the past, had kept it at bay. Maybe the work had kept the depressions at bay. But it was obvious to me when I finally did start transcribing my diaries. It was obvious to me that actually I was quite, I was depressed quite a lot of the time, but I wasn't acknowledging or confronting it. I was denying it and just plowing my way through it um and actually getting getting a, a psychiatrist simply to say to you look you know you've got a really bad depression and we need to think about how we treat this was was actually it was a statement of the blindingly obvious but it was very helpful to come from somebody that i'd, I'd learned to trust so but you had your first major depressive episode what in your 20s mm -hmm. so had you just been white knuckling it all that time no, not why nothing yet, but because I had a breakdown in um, in, in Scotland, it was. Then um, my final collapse was in Hamilton. Um, you know that big, ugly, grey council building in Hamilton? 
that was where the final the final switch went and I ended up in hospital and yeah that, that was I, I do again you know it's you've got to be careful because you maybe you can rewrite these things after the event but I do I now look back on it as a a positive turning point as you know I, I stopped drinking I didn't drink again for 13 years um I got my old job back I started very it took me a while it took me a long while but I slowly started to get my confidence back and then I I kind of started again at the bottom of the mirror and uh I sort of got a second wind I got a second chance and I got and, and I really I really ran with it um so I wasn't white knuckling it but I think that what I, what I definitely was doing was thinking that I was feeling such a sense of strength and pride and confidence from not drinking from cracking that part of it I think I wasn't even thinking about any of the other stuff and so it was only really yeah it was it was only as I say 2005 that I had finally said you've got to get help for this and was that a big deal to to sort of say that to yourself no not I think it, I think it had been building for quite a while what happened one day Fiona and I were out walking on the Hampstead Heath not far from here and I I, I literally started punching myself in the face. I was so kind of, I don't know what was going on inside, but I felt absolutely wretched and I was literally smacking myself in the face really hard, you know, bruises, eyes, bruised eyes and all that. And as I was doing it, I was thinking, yeah, of course, you can't do this anymore. You can't, you can't do this on your own. You've got to sort of yourself out. Um, and I phoned the guy that day and, um, did you know really, really hard graft with him quite a while. Um and since then I've been, you know, I still get depression. I still get the odd bout, but way, way, way less, way, way fewer than I used to. In terms of the depression, I mean a friend and colleague of mine, Denise Welsh, I don't know if you know uh, Denise or not, she speaks mm. a lot about mental yeah. health. Um and she has depression, you know, from episodes. Uh, she thinks stemming from when she she had her first child. But with Denise, it's something that happens to her, the way she explains. It's not mm. necessarily tied to something that is going on in her life at any mm. particular point. Is is that the case for you? Do you think you had as a kid? I mean, do you think you were born with, with a, a predisposition? I don't. I don't. I don't know the answer to that because I, most of the time. Most people who meet me would think I was a pretty happy sort of character. I have a good life, pretty positive most of the time. I can be a bit grumpy and all that, but you know, I, I, I'm I'm pretty positive, and I and I tend to see good in places and people. Um, and then every now and again, I get these sort of massive plunges. And I think the psychiatrist, this guy David, that I've seen for a fair few years now, just well, yeah, eighteen years now. And I think sometimes he thinks there's a, there's still some sort of hidden thing somewhere that we haven't found and we haven't brought out. And I don't think there is. I think I'm just one of those people that I get depression from time to time and I've learned to accept it and I've learned to live with it. Um, and by accepting it and by learning to live with it and doing different things to deal with it, medication, exercise, looking after my sleep, looking after my physical health, music, um, writing. I mean, all these things that I do that, that help me either keep it at bay or deal with it when it comes. Um, I've just got better at dealing with it. Now, it doesn't mean that 
you know, sometimes it's usually a, I know what Denise means. I mean, with me, it, 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 it's usually a sort of slow build up. I've only once or twice had it when it's literally been a kind of, you know, like a switch. It's usually a slow build up. I kind of feel it happening. And then usually when I wake up, I'll wake up and just, I'm in a different, I'm in a completely different mindset. And, and, and I know it's, it's gone and it's there. So how different are you now at 66 from what you were at 26? Well, at 26, I was high-flying, heavy drinking, overworking, very cocky, very totally sure of myself, absolutely convinced I was I was going places, and then I crashed and burned. Um, at 66, I think I've still got a lot of drive and I've still got a lot of confidence and I've still got a lot of deep belief but I think I'm maybe more measured about how I live my life so you think I go 100 miles an hour but I, I think I'm probably going a bit a little bit slower and I, I'm, I'm going about it in a more measured way I'm not perfect far from it I think I look after the relationships better than I did you just after 42 years had a civil partnership is that right we did what led to that so the romantic answer or the honest answer? Don't tell me your tax situation. <laughs> no, well, we've got a, a house in France, and I don't know if you've seen the film Napoleon, but the the the, the, the laws of inheritance on property are very very strange. Oh. <laughs> no, neither of us have ever wanted to get married. Fiona's a sort of feminist, and I'm 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 a well, we're both atheists, but I I've always seen marriage as a religious thing. Um. But it was cool. It was night. We had a very nice day. It was, it was fantastic. It was in the middle of COVID, so nobody else could come. It was brilliant. It's interesting that you, I was going to say settled in, that's not what I meant, for a civil partnership and not marriage, but you've just said that you, neither of you. But is that not the same sort of commitment that you've made? Oh, yeah. Well, I think we made a commitment 40 years ago. I, I, I don't feel we're any more or less married than we were. I feel. I think most people who know us don't know I don't know any other couples that spend as much time together as we do. And the nice thing about COVID actually was that was was the realization that there are very, very, very few people on this planet that I could be locked up with um, for an extended period of time without going a bit crazy. But and on balance, Fiona would say the same. Um, on balance, I'm glad it was Fiona. <laughs> <laughs> so, what makes your relationship work? Because you can't be the easiest. <laughs> I, I know I'm not the easiest, and, and and I think looking back, I think if I think Fiona's very very strong, and I think she's got, although she can get, you know, edgy, she's she's got very, she's got pretty high tolerance levels. I mean, she just snap at me, but I think I think the other thing that's happened, I've always, pretty much always been able to make her laugh, which I think is quite important i'm pretty generous in that i this is going to sound embarrassing but i don't even know how to get into our bank account <laughs> uh looks after everything and i think it's i think it's because we're both strong characters but we appreciate the strength of the other mm. and i know i can be a nightmare to live with i absolutely do know that and and there's definitely been there have been times in the past when I feel, I still to this day feel terrible about, you know, some of the ways I treated Fiona. There's definitely times when I've 
Because I think what's happened with partners of people when they're going through really bad depression is that they tend to blame themselves. And I think there was a time when I was very, very happy for Fiona to take the blame if she wanted to. Um, and, and I think the, the mindset in that is basically, if I'm feeling like shit, I don't see why anybody else shouldn't feel like shit. And that's pretty horrible. I've stopped doing that. Um, and again, I think that was partly through with, with help. I think it was... I had to be kind of coached towards that. So your your civil ceremony, though, despite the fact that it was done for you know administrative reasons, shall we say, it was surprisingly romantic. It was an act of pure love. But was it surprisingly romantic? Did it take you aback after forty two years? No, no. It was, it was a beautiful day, and I thought it was a beautiful day for a reason. I mean, beautiful. I mean, like warm, sunny, trees, flowers, all that stuff. And yeah, I do think COVID was an interesting period for a lot of couples, but I definitely felt during that period that, you know, I was very, 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 very lucky and that a lot of women would have peeled off by now. Well, listen, we're going to play, we have two, a little thing we call Big Six or Bingo. So we're just going to ask you two questions. Um, um Karen takes over at this point. I'm allowed to speak now. Two numbers between one and 60, one at a time. 10. Okay. Oh, well, we know this. Have you been lucky in love? Do you want to know why I picked 10? Uh, okay, you're well, going to tell us, yes. It's not Downing Street, Diego Maradona. <laughs> I never even thought of Downing Street, and I'm not a football player, so a football player, football fan. All right, All right. Diego Maradona. Yeah. All right. I wouldn't have thought as an Englishman you'd be that much of a fan of Diego Maradona. I'm not. I don't consider myself English at all. Oh, really? So what are you? Scottish. I'm British, Scottish. No, and I didn't think you were Scottish. I didn't think you thought of yourself as Scottish. Mm, totally. Yeah. Why do I play? Why do you think I play the bagpipes? But I dread, obviously, can't believe everything you read, can you? But I thought I'd read somewhere that you just absolutely didn't think of yourself as Scottish. No. Clearly, I picked not. that up wrong. Right, another number. Well, you don't answer the question yet. Are you lucky in love? Oh, I know that. It's a, it's a yes. Right, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Have yeah, you definitely. been lucky in love? He's just talked about Fiona and how lovely she is. Yeah, definitely. definitely. But you better expand on it, Alistair, for God's sakes. Otherwise, I'll be getting the evil. I've been very, very lucky. Very lucky. Just going to edit out, okay? That's all. That's fine. Yeah. Isn't it? You have yeah. been, yeah. Uh, another number. Um, this is this is, shows you how crazy I am about football. The number that's come into my head is seven. Is that David Beckham? No, it's how many home defeats in a row that Burnley have just had. Oh, that's a bad run, that is. Yeah, very bad, yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. Ten. Yeah. Seven. No, so, seven. Shut up. Best year of your life. 97 was pretty good. Well, who who won what in 97? <laughs> it's, it's bizarre. It was, it was one of those times when things could only get better. Yeah. It but was I a good year. It. I didn't. I didn't massively enjoy it, but it was a great. It, it was a defining year in my life. Put it that way. Where were you then? I mean, obviously, ninety-seven. You're talking about Tony Blair's election win. Where were you? Sedgefield, his constituency. Right. When did you know it was going to happen? Uh, probably a few days out, but but right until the end, didn't know we were going to win that big. And then that that what followed from that was kind of pretty good. But yeah, I'm going 97. 97. Okay, we're going 97. <laughs> uh, she's confused. There's too many numbers. Yeah. yeah. Our head's frozen, you can see. Yeah. Alistair, listen, thank you so much. My pleasure. It's been a delight. Yes. Absolute delight. 
Yeah, thank you, thank you. And I'm sorry for making so many false assumptions about you. Right. You're not like, the first. No, no you're yeah. not. Yeah. Nonetheless, it's nice to be disabused, that's for sure. And I'm very glad to be. Have you had any previous emergencies? Why are you first emergency? You are the first and only emergency podcast. <laughs> I think that's a compliment. <laughs> I will. Thank you very much. Well, that was, that just was not what I thought it was going to be. I, I, he was not what I thought he was going to be. I mean, he was just so much more laid back. I got myself worked up into such a frenzy that, uh, my God, it's all And he was just like a, a nice man in a woolly jumper. He, he was he was a lot more when you when you think back to what he's been through his career you know what he's done in in, in government it's scary so what did you think of him I was surprised I think I thought this I might have got this from you actually Kay I think I thought oh what's he going to be like is he going to be really you know let, just let's just rattle through this podcast and because I've, I've got busy life busy life but yeah quite amazing and quite different from what I imagined as well. Yeah, well, there you go. Um, it's nice to be surprised, isn't it? It always is. Um, what I did want to say was, go on. of course, that, you know, you're amazed at his busy life. He crams everything in. And I just want to say, Kay, pot, kettle, black. Oh, God. You're the one that comparison. never stops. And it's interesting that you are amazed by how much he kind of like uh, squeezes into life. And it's actually just it's a bit of a reflection on your own life. Oh, God. You, you just never let go. No, I don't. You don't. I absolutely you don't. don't. You don't. For good reason. Um, next week uh, is just you and me. Can't book. Well, no. I, nobody I, I, else. Actually, we've got lots of great guests coming up. We've got um, uh, Lorraine Kelly coming up at the beginning of the year. That is very exciting. Yes, it'll be nice to speak to her because people have mistaken you for her. Um, <laughs> I've got a whole lot of good guests. But next week, just because we thought it is the Friday before Christmas, so it's a kinky key next week. Kinky key. Bring yeah. it on. Yeah, absolutely. So any questions for us on the old kinky key front? <laughs> well, she can be kinky. I'll just be key. Um, it's a podcast at htb60.com.